1: Hello, welcome to React Roundup. I'm the host today, Nader Dabbitt. Today on our panel, we have Justin Bennett. Hey, everyone. Lucas Risch. Hello, everybody. And today, our special guest is Carly Litchfield. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Before we get into our topic, do you want to give us a quick intro, uh, introduction for yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm a full-stack software engineer at ZocDoc, which is a company that sort of a like lets you look up and search for doctors or dentists and then book appointments with them online. And I have been at SovDoc for a little bit more than four years now, so I'm getting up there. I do a lot of React and on the back end, a lot of C Sharp.
1: Interesting, C Sharp. I don't hear a lot of back ends these days written in C Sharp. That's
2: pretty cool. Yeah. It's actually um, a great language. I, I recommend it personally.
1: So uh, so with C Sharp, you can do all types of stuff. That you can, you can do like game development and... and you can do, like, data science and things like that. Do you get into any of that other stuff?
2: I haven't. I've actually, like, kind of a dream of mine is to make some small game because I've literally done, like, no game development at all. And I think it's very interesting. But really, so far, I've just used C sharp for web development.
1: And then C-Sharp is kind of like a web framework that you use. You use a web framework, I guess, written in C-Sharp for like APIs and stuff? Or Yeah,
2: so there's like ASP.NET, MVC, which we use. It's just some Microsoft standard web stuff.
1: Okay, cool. That's interesting. Like, that kind of goes along with the topic for today. We're going to be kind of talking about a couple of things. Uh, one of them is going to be being like a front-end developer in a team that's mainly focused on back-end development. I guess that's kind of a good way to word it, but uh, we'll we'll go more into that. And, we'll, and then finally, we'll probably get into some stuff around testing. But uh, how did you get into React development in general? Um, and kind of like what has your experience been with it, like positives and negatives so far?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so when I started at SockTalk, it was Backbone Shop and React, I don't think, like existed publicly yet, so we were building a lot of stuff in Backbone. We still have some like pretty significant chunks of code in Backbone that hasn't been upgraded. Um, but even Backbone was like an upgraded version of uh, a lot of front end code, which was like just jQuery and in these ASPX files. So like C sharp mixed in with your JavaScript. At some point, we had like even before my time, a lot of the JavaScript was done in Script Sharp which is, believe it or not, C-sharp compiled to JavaScript. So it was like, there's been a lot of evolutions, right? But so somewhere around, like, I think two or two and a half years ago, something like that, ZocDoc went through a rebranding. So we were, you know, changing a lot of our website from, like, blue colors and our old logo to, like, a lot of yellow colors, like, really uplifting, giving a big facelift to the whole website. And at that time, we knew we were going to have to rewrite a lot of the front-end code So we started evaluating like what, like, okay, do we want to stick with Backbone or do we want to try out like these other frameworks which are sort of gaining steam, which was primarily Angular or React. And so the way we did it was we had like three engineers. I actually wasn't one of them, um, but we had three engineers who essentially did like a few days of a you know building a sample one of our pages in either angular or in react to try and see like which one they liked more and they enjoyed more and i yeah i wasn't super close to that process but i think it was like a good little proof of concept and we ended up choosing react which i think was definitely the right choice in hindsight but yeah so after that a little bit after that i started working on some react stuff i at first it was really really hard i think like i it was a lot to learn i actually took course by Tyler McGinnis, like one of his react fundamentals courses. And, uh, that helped me a ton to actually understand what was going on. I think it would have taken a lot more time for me to slowly learn on the job without that course. But yeah, after that, I was like, okay, this is actually really great. Everything is actually becoming componentized. Like it feels like what backbone wanted to do that. I don't know, like maybe it was just ZocDoc's use of backbone was poor, or maybe it, the React is just better, I don't know. But uh, but it definitely started to feel a lot better and feel a lot more like we were writing reusable code that was actually compartmentalized and concerns were separated and all, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so I, I've also done like a bit of React Native development. We worked on an app for maybe like four or five months. And that was like when React Native was still pretty new, like in the zero point, like, early fours, like 0.40-ish days, which I think it's in like 0.5 or or 6 now or something. I don't remember. But yeah, it it was super raw, but it was also like very cool to to do some of that React Native stuff then.
1: Interesting that you worked with React Native. That's one of my favorite things to work with. (laughs) Okay, cool.
3: Carly, one question about this early days. So like everybody was learning about this new domain, the front-end domain, and how how was that knowledge spread like how 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 did this uh get like spread throughout the company all right so this is the decisions we're making now let's start writing stuff let's start refactoring how 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 did it happen
2: yeah so one of the people who was on that like three person team that tested out react his name was thomas and he basically went around to anyone who was starting to build stuff in react and did like a little tutorial for them, right? On like how you can set up your app, how you can get started. Like, what does it look like to build a like React app at Zocdoc? And he also made a lot of like tooling to make that easier, right? Like, it was really really hard to get people to understand how to set up Webpack, and how to you know push their like React apps to automatically like whether it's integrated with Travis or you know have it actually hook up with our web servers to be able to to actually serve the apps. A bunch of this kind of stuff was like, he didn't want everyone to have to deal with it. So he made a lot of like little config libraries that were pretty easy to just plug and play. So you would like spin up your React app and you would automatically get the right Travis set up. For CI, you'd get your like web driver config configured the same as everyone. You'd have like your NPM integration the same as everyone else. It would be pretty easy to like hook it into our actual servers, that kind of stuff. So, so that was like kind of crucial at the time, I think, to help with adoption. Right. And yeah, now those libraries are like, they're, they're not like being super well-owned or maintained at Zocdoc. So now they're actually like causing a little bit of pain in that way, which is interesting, but I, I think they were a necessary element in order to get like adoption across the org to start writing React apps. But we also had a lot of people at the company take that course on React fundamentals, which, which helped a lot too.
4: That's awesome. Uh, one of the things that I've I've dealt with in the past, uh, especially working at places who had like a smaller like front end engineering dedicated presence, is there's kind of a a weird tendency to trivialize like front end work, right? It's like, oh, it's just JavaScript and CSS. You can just, like slap that together. I, I remember this one instance in particular where I was meeting with an engineer who primarily focused on like backend systems, and he was like, we were talking about this feature, and I was saying, you know, this is going to take us, you know, two sprints to do. Like, it's it's a lot of work, and he's like, I don't understand. It's just like JavaScript and CSS. He's yeah. like, you just like puts in JavaScript and CSS on the page and it's done, right? And I was like, oh, well, you don't understand. Yeah. So. Did you have any of those cultural issues to deal with? And if so, like how did your team approach kind of bridging those
2: barriers? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like, I think it's evidenced by, if you look at some of ZocDoc's code, you know, that has been since deleted or a little bit of it that's still around, like you will see, you know, a thousand, two thousand line, like jQuery files that are just written by us that are just absolutely impossible to know what the heck's going on, where, and how it all hooks up. And it just, it's extremely painful to work with. And those pages are like more or less impossible to, to change and to iterate on right now. Like anything that any, some of like the internal tooling is still using this and anything in that, like nobody is, is upgrading them at all unless it's absolutely business critical because they're impossible to work with. And so I think like that kind of served as this forcing mechanism to eventually say, okay, wow, like we've built so much of our front end in a way that it's now completely, you can't change it at all. You know, like you you have no confidence that you're not going to break things. It's an incredibly complicated page and we're like paralyzed pretty much. We can't do anything in on this feature area. So that served as like this kind of moment where I think the org started to realize like, okay, front end is actually hard and it's important to think about how we structure it and we can't just go popping around like css and javascript like in you know ad nauseum like wherever we want and so then that's when like they started just even trying to use backbone right and trying to make these like sort of more single page app stuff but even with backbone you know we didn't we never hired a specific like front-end engineer we we took like our interview process was really only for back end engineers like we didn't have a process to hire front end engineers or to test for those skills and so we just continued to hire back end engineers and tried to like have them learn front end right which it's like always harder and you're always going to make more mistakes if you don't have a senior person who can can train people and help them like avoid making those mistakes you know like absolutely these engineers will eventually become just as capable and just as efficient at front end engineering but they'll just have to learn the hard way to get there Whereas like a senior dev can help them to not have to learn the hard way. So yeah, so that was when we were getting into backbone and stuff. And then even our backbone apps would be really heavy and really difficult to work with. And uh, it was around that time that we started thinking like, okay, we think we're going to move to React. And how can we avoid like making these same kind of difficult to work with huge front end applications. And the answer to that was like, maybe we can try and hire somebody with real front end experience. But that definitely took a long time to get to it. It took like both the forcing mechanism of having a lot of really bad front end code and also having the opportunity to rewrite it a lot for a business purpose, like the rebranding that then we just started to like make a front end engineering interview process that was pretty hard to get off the ground too, because it was again, like mostly back-end engineers (laughs) trying to figure out how to interview for front-end. Now we've gotten a lot better. Like now we have several senior and principal front-end engineers to help guide that. But yeah, it it was definitely very hard. We started out by like having a take-home project, for example, that front-end engineers would do. We iterated on like exactly what we were looking for from that. We iterated on like how we need to judge it and like what are the important things we also struggled with like how much back end do we expect this front end person to know like we still wanted them to know some like in general how you know apis are set up and probably be able to do a little bit of work on the back end when it's needed but we like went really back and forth on like how to like where to set that line and and how to judge against it
3: yeah uh, that cultural part of the back end people from back end domains looking at front end i think that for for a while it was like this uh, front end is easy and they and it was like look oh this is a, an easy topic. and from time to time you would see like an appli a resulting application that was a mess and then you you kind of like say okay so look at this this is not easy this is like a difficult problem to solve and then sometimes the the answer is but this should be easy like it's difficult because like you are like inventing one framework every two weeks. Y'all are making this this difficult. This should be easy, but it's not. Like building UIs is extremely difficult. And the level of the applications we're doing today, it's like a super uh, complicated problem domain.
2: I was just going to say, I had a I have an old manager of mine who he posted a quote from his friend in our Slack channel that I really think like just encapsulates the like cultural shift that we're seeing right now, and and his friend was saying that he feels like uh, a lot of the very hard like parts of building a website on the back end are we've we've kind of like evolved this architecture to like a relatively stable state right now. So we've established like various ways of caching, you know, SQL and NoSQL databases, like how you set up microservices and and this sort of chaos engineering stuff. Like right, like these are really advanced strategies. And on the back end, he's, he, his his idea was that mostly this kind of stuff is like plug and play now. It's like you have all these services and you can kind of just, you know, go to AWS and figure out like how you need to connect them. I don't want to diminish backend engineering. Like I think backend is really hard too. But he was saying that like the reason that he s- thinks we're still seeing all this churn in the front end is that these problems aren't solved yet, right? Like we actually don't have like a perfect answer to exactly how like the industry wants to build front end applications. And so a lot of the more like interesting and, and dynamic and like, I don't know, like a lot of the, the right answers are still, are still to be found on the front end. Um, and I just don't think you would have heard that from like a really advanced individual contributor engineer like three years ago or four years ago.
3: Yeah, I think that some uh, in some uh, ways, some types of application, we are kind of uh, finding better ways of like static websites with static content, like blogs and stuff through the WordPress model. And these, Like, I think that we're finding a little bit practices that enable people with not a lot of experience build like intricate stuff. But most of front end is still like as you said, like such a such a crazy domain.
4: Yeah. 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 When I started my career, I actually started in using C. And one of the first things that I started diving into was building UIs with C um using a framework called QT. Oh and yeah.
2: I've done some QT.
4: Yeah. So
2: Looking back right
4: now, yeah, yeah, QML and like a lot of interesting things. So QT is actually a pretty good framework for building like native UIs. Mm -hmm. But the world of just building native UIs is extremely complicated and extremely difficult. And so just taking that and like thinking about it from the perspective of, oh, hey, now not only do we have to build a UI, which is extremely difficult, but we also have to support like multiple different, like, runtime environments that, you know, interpret these things differently and, like, have their own quirks, and we are essentially using tools which, to a large part, aren't really intended to be used in the way that we're using them, right? So, I mean, like, I I still fundamentally believe, like, CSS isn't really designed to style the sorts of applications that we're building these days because you know like everything's globally scoped there's no like good way to like make composition and things without like doing like crazy naming hacks and like you know we build all these like really monstrous like abstractions to kind of get the performance and scalability out of these tools that we want but like they're not really built for what we're using them for. So just like being able to do any of this stuff is just like amazing anyway. So,
2: yeah, I agree. I mean, like when I first started using style components, for example, I was a bit skeptical of like, oh, this is weird. You know, what if we need to reuse this class or these styles or something? And then after you do it for a little bit, you're like, oh my God, I am so, it's so nice that I never have to worry about like reusing classes and I can just change styles and know exactly where it's going to impact And, like, it actually just is a part of my component, you know, not this, like, additional layer on top of it. Like, and and I hear a lot of people being like, what about, you know, oh, everyone was all about these separation of concerns of JavaScript, HTML, CSS. And I'm like, I mean, maybe at some point that, like, they were, like, three distinct concerns. Like, maybe at some point you wanted, like, the website or the internet was, like, mostly blogs or posts and you, you... needed to like render different content with the same style I don't even know, but it's like I just think we were wrong about that. I just think we were wrong to think that like JavaScript HTML and CSS was were really separate concerns when we were talking about web apps like they're just actually like very much linked and one component is like one concern if you will and and I think that the JavaScript HTML and CSS parts of it are are really necessary elements and interact very closely with each other
3: yeah i I agree that If you look at maybe the page model versus the app model, maybe you can understand a little bit there. But like when when you're building apps, it's so complex. Like you want a button to look like that button. Like you have these design systems and you have the primary button, button, the secondary button, and you want them to look the same wherever you put them. It's a component for an app. Like uh, the CSS, I believe that maybe if you have like a page like a Wikipedia page where you have like headers and you have sections and articles and things like that maybe the CSS uh, model makes sense on, on, on that particular domain but but like with application it's so complicated right. i don't know like the level maybe maybe the level of abstraction you can go like more or less with the different css and js the css and js uh, libraries i'm 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 a fan of style components and i'm a fan also of styled jsx which is kind of like a small css uh, file for your component okay but yeah i don't know like Things are getting better one other uh, subject carly that that I, I think it 's interesting, okay, so now we are in this front end world and ZocDoc. doc let 's go back to to the history and one big uh, problem with the, the the old days was like reliability and stuff like that, so uh, we know you talked a lot about testing front end in the past, so like can you tell a little bit more about this history of testing and how this uh, came about in the company and in your professional life?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think like when I so I started as a doing a lot of a lot of the front end stuff, and I sort of slowly moved into back end. And what I noticed like moving into back end after getting a little bit comfortable there was just like how much easier it is that you know you're not going to break something when <laughs> you change something like because of the tests, you know. Like I could just actually confidently change things on the back end and not do like hundred manual checks. To make sure that i hadn't broken something and so i was like okay this testing stuff is like really great i really actually kind of love it and i'm just we i think we need to figure out how to like do it on the front end too right and we we also like had to i work on the provider team at Zocdoc, which is like the doctor facing team and so i build a bunch of tools that doctors use so our stuff is often used in like doctor's offices or even hospitals where usually the users don't have control over their environments. And so like, if they're on IE7, they don't really have a choice to upgrade. Like they, it's like their IT administrators would need to upgrade for them. Right. So we had to like support like IE7 for a long time. Right. Until like a few years ago and had to support IE8 for a long time until like last year. And like, even now we, we are just starting to not support IE9. So So that meant that, like, whenever you change something on the front end, yeah, you needed to go and manually verify in all these browsers and also, like, just hope that you hadn't broken some functionality. It was awful, right? Like, it was so much work. And so we just started thinking about, like, what can we possibly do to make the front end, like, more testable? Because I I also think it was driving people to write worse code, right? Rather than, like, changing something, they just, like, write a new thing that did pretty much the same thing as the old one. uh, But they were too afraid to change the old one that they just had to make the new one a little bit different, you know? And so then they both live on forever. And a bug would come up and you'd fix it in the original place, but it would still exist in the second place, right?
3: I, I usually call that layer-oriented design. It's like <laughs> just put layers, 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 because you're afraid of touching the, the old code.
2: Right, exactly. So we actually built like a first version. like Before, we, when we were still on Backbone, we actually built this screenshot testing framework, which is like kind of crazy when you think about ZocDoc at, healthcare startup building a screenshot testing framework like we're obviously should be focusing on how we make ZocDoc like our core differentiating features better rather than how how do we test front-end code but so we did it we built this whole like screenshot testing thing where it would basically you know you could have a backbone view you could pass in a model and it would render it it would save a picture of it and then it would uh, whenever somebody makes changes like do that same render again and compare and Take a pixel difference, and if there was a difference, you could see the two, compare them side by side, and then like accept it.
0: Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use, it works anywhere, available from any device uh, on the desktop iPhone, iPad, Android and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says, pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section.
2: And uh,
1: That's pretty cool. Did you guys use machine learning for that?
2: No, no, no. no, no I mean for
1: was, what so like how would you change detect the difference between the pictures? Like were you running in, were you running in through like what were you running that through, I guess?
2: It was really uh, this like you just send it to like a an array of pixels and you would compare each pixel color and see if they're the same or not. And if they aren't the right, same, then okay, you okay. like highlight it red. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, it was cool and I mean it worked. We called it Lena, which Lena is like uh, so I said electrical engineering in college and Lena is th- this woman who her photo has been used in like a lot of image processing examples in the past. So we called it Lena and it was a system we used it for a while, maybe like a year at least or something like that. Um it worked well, like definitely caught some bugs. It also served as like awesome documentation for what components we have and what they look like. So you could just like go to the, this Lena page and like browse all of our components, like everything that shows up in the calendar. But so basically like, you know, fast forward a year or two and we've essentially built like storybook and, and Percy like in-house. So we like were a little bit maybe ahead of the game with that, um, yeah. but like in, in general, like that's basically what we've moved to instead, right? So once we started building React apps, we were like, okay, how can we get a, get away from this homegrown, like, component library and this homegrown like screenshot testing framework? And uh, another engineer at Zocdoc, Thomas, he found Percy. Percy didn't have a React integration yet, so we wrote our we wrote a React integration for it, but so that was awesome. And, and then we started using Storybook eventually for like a, a component library.
4: Could you talk a little bit about Percy, just like introduce it for folks who might not know what it is?
2: Yeah, so Percy is basically exactly what I just described Lenit as, which is that it will render your components. You you, like write a test case for it, which just renders a component. Or if you're using Storybook, it'll automatically take your stories. And it'll like, like, Percy will grab all the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then it'll render it in a browser, save a screenshot of whatever it is. And then every time you like push code and run your CI, it'll compare the new screenshot against the old one and like if there's nothing different it won't tell you if there's something different it'll show you exactly what's different and you have to go through and like approve each one and they actually are like they'll render at different screen sizes like so you can do mobile stuff too which is really awesome and like pretty much like there was no way to automatically test mobile screenshots before that I know of yeah, so that's
3: what it does. Yeah, when I when I got here to to Zocdoc and I saw the Percy tests, that that was one of the the things that I, that that I thought like, oh my god, this makes a difference. Like the closest we had was snapshot testing, right? You yeah. generate like a text file of the components and then <laughs> compare them. Nobody looks at the diffs. Just like
2: you. <laughs> right. No one looks at this. It doesn't make sense to look at the diffs. Like, who's going to read those diffs? They're so long. They're impossible to read. Like, how do you know if, like, you know, these random additional spans and divs matter or if they're expected or not? Like, all all it tells you is, like, oh, you had an impact on this component? And then you're like, yeah, I think I did. And then you say, approve? Or you're like, no, I didn't mean to change that one. I'm actually surprised that's changed. And then you go and look at it, you know? But that's really all snapshots do, like, in my opinion.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the... And the screenshot test, like added, like this this quality check that I think it's so it's so important. It makes such an impact. Like you really see pixel by pixel what changed from one from one rendering to the other, and it catches it catches the the difference in CSS like. Uh, it's really difficult to like code review CSS without seeing what's happening, and Percy gives it to you, so it's it's so more agile to 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 review code that has visual changes, like even like things like you add a border and stuff, and you can see like the the border moves everything like one pixel down, and you can see that all the red sea of changed, and then you look okay, so this may okay, so let's use a border box and things like that, so. It's really, it, it was really mind-blowing when I used Percy for, for the first time. And they have like a GitHub hook, so we don't, we don't let the PR go through. If uh, there are changes, people need to approve. And we can even involve the designers in that process, so this is really cool
4: so you you'd mentioned having to support like a lot of different browsers what sort of context does percy run in does it have like a specific execution environment is it running like in a chrome instance Um, or do you are i mean do they like make that available to you do you know kind of what it runs in
2: yeah so they have options to run in firefox or chrome right now but that's all so far i think it's like I've, t- I've talked to some people at Percy, and and I've seen them, like, I think on Twitter or something like that, like, talk about how, you know, cross-browsers, like, on our roadmap, it's coming down the pipeline, um, but I think it's obviously just, like, really hard to do it in older browsers, and especially Internet Explorer, so, like, who knows when or if that will come, but just having it so that you know it at least looks the same in Chrome and Firefox has been, like, a huge help.
4: Yeah, for sure. That's something that my company's been talking about recently is just, like, how do we... How do we ensure that things are, like, continuing to work across browsers? So even, like, not even from, like, a visual, is it, like, visually the same, but, like, just is it rendering, you know? Is there any problems, like, did we introduce something that, like, completely broke IE11 or, or, you know, whatever? Um, So is there anything that y'all do from a testing standpoint to, like, just test, like, general, does it work across browsers?
2: Yeah, so we use BrowserStack with WebDriver.io, and so we run like the Selenium tests, basically, In we run them on browser stack. And so when you can specify like each test, if you want it to run in Chrome or Chrome and Firefox or I11 or on Windows or like whatever, right? So that's, that's basically what we do in order to just, yeah, essentially make sure that things are mostly working in I11 and stuff like that. The more of those tests that you add, right, like Lucas and I were talking actually earlier about how you know, in an ideal world where like you don't worry where like these kind of integration tests run reliably and quickly and uh, at a low cost, like you would just write every single test and run them in all these environments at every single change. Right. So there's like, but obviously like they do cost money to run and they are slow and they are flaky, like, especially in the older browsers, they're flaky. And so you have this sort of trade-off of, yeah, like what's the level, what's the correct, like amount of test coverage to get, of these old environments. My team personally is like settling around somewhere of like we are testing, you know, if we introduce like a new like feature, like workflow, essentially, we go through like a happy path of that in WebDriver.io, like on multiple browsers through browser Stack. But the kind of like edge cases, we're, we're moving towards the world where we're writing those sort of more edge cases and like the not happy paths and trying to write them in Cypress instead. But we're really just starting on Cypress.
1: Well, it sounds like you all have a pretty extensive testing suite of tools to use on the front end. Does every single change run through all of these different tests, um, browser stack as well as Percy as well as uh, whatever else, or does it kind of depend on the change?
2: Yes, so every single change does run through all of these right now. We do have like a fairly broken up front end, so we have a lot of different repositories on the front end. Um, So that means that like, you know, if somebody changes something on uh, the patient website, it's not like they're going to run the doctor website tests. So that helps a lot. And same thing, like we have like two dashboards on the doctor side and they're in different repositories. So if someone changes something on one dashboard, it's only going to run the test for that dashboard. So that helps with like speed. Like I think right now my team's CI runs as something around like ten or twelve minutes, so it's not like super long. But yeah, if you have like a monolith application, you know, running all those tests can can definitely get crazy.
3: Yeah, but definitely, like every run of every PR run, every suite of tests, Cypress, Selenium, uh, Percy, Jest. Uh, so speaking about WebDriver, you Selenium and Cypress, why why? Uh, why did you decide on trying Cypress? Like, what, what's, what has been your, your experience with that?
2: Yeah, so I'm like still convinced that there is some great way to debug WebDriver.io that I just don't know about that other people must be using because like, I can't figure it out. Like, I have not been able to have a pleasant debugging experience with WebDriver.io yet, and I just don't know how everyone's like doing it. So maybe like someone out there can tell me how I need to set up my environment to debug it effectively. Maybe you guys can tell me. But mostly it was just like impossible to work with, to debug. Setting the breakpoints is like, I mean, it just, yeah, it's it's not a pleasant experience. And then when I saw Cypress is like just their advertising video of, you know, how they log all of the actions and how you can hover before and after and see what happened and see the difference. And they tell you exactly what they tried to click on and they highlight the target that they tried to click on. I was like, I mean, I just have to try this, you know? And so I actually like set it up in just a little app that I have, like a, as a side project where I test out testing things and did it a little bit there. And I was like, okay, this is like really awesome. I, it just makes it so intuitive and so easy to debug and step through your tests and see exactly where it failed and see like what Ajax requests are fired off when, and if they're, if they like are getting 200s or 500s or what. Yeah. So then I was like, I, I, it was still in beta, right? This was probably in like February or March or something like this. So I started thinking about it. So yeah, it was still on beta. And, uh, but I, I just felt like I really wanted to use it at work too. So I just somehow managed to convince my team that we should, um, we should try it out. So I wrote one test in Cyprus. I had like a meeting with our front-end guild about it and meeting with my team about it because it was going to add like three minutes to our CI run so this was like not great right this is actually like a kind of significant sacrifice um now we have build stages set up and it's separate it's much better it doesn't add the three minutes anymore but like initially it was going to add the three minutes um so i had to get everyone on board so i did like all these demos of like how nice it is to step through like they say they're going to be faster they claim to have no flakes at all who knows if that's true you know they're still in beta who knows if they're going to be around in a year so let's just like write one test in it and have it run for a while and see if it ever flakes or fails or whatever. But yeah, so I wrote that one in it and uh, and basically like yeah, it, it worked fine. Right, it it didn't really flake at all. Like people started to have to work with the test a little bit, so they would have to start up Cypress and actually like feel the experience. And I think it was really that. Like after a few times of working with Cypress and then having to go back to WebDriver wow IO, and you're just like, this is so much better. I really want to work with my test in Cypress instead. And so then it just started like. Getting some more adoption on my team and and spreading out to some other teams at Zocdoc too.
3: Yeah, that, that's interesting. You, you spoke about this spread of knowledge. It goes back to to the subject in the beginning. You talked about the front end guild. Could you could you talk about like what, what is it? Is it like a secret group? <laughs> uh, yeah. So if? I
2: think we we borrowed like the guilds idea from. I think we probably heard about it from Spotify or something first, where, you know, if you have, if you have like fully functional, functional is probably the wrong word, but like cross-functional teams where you have, you know, engineers who are owning their own infrastructure, their own microservice, their own CI setup, their own front end, their own backend, um, their own cron service, like whatever, right? All this kind of stuff. You end up with like, you have a lot of the expertise concentrated on your one product team and that's like very much spread out throughout the company so for example like you'll have a few scala developers maybe on one team but like the scala knowledge is spread out throughout throughout every product team in the company same thing with front end same thing with uh, aws same thing with like all of these technologies right so it's like how do you come together and talk about you know, standardize on what your strategies are going to be, what your best practices are, what's like the ZocDoc way to do any of these things. And so we made these guilds, yeah, where basically we have like a Scala guild, a front-end guild, we have a C-sharp guild where people come together and talk about like, yeah, just whatever best practices, whatever is like uh, where the the direction the company is going, like what new tools we're using, uh, a bunch of stuff like that. So the front-end guild at ZocDoc is basically just a group of people who are interested, at least interested in front-end, um, it's not mandatory, so it's just like whoever is interested comes, and we'll have someone present on either like new tools that their team is using, like problems that their team is facing, maybe new things that are coming down like in the industry, um, stuff like that.
3: That's nice. I, I wonder how how does uh, knowledge spread happen in in other companies? To just and others, how how does it so, so such different companies, different scales? How. Does knowledge spread happens on, on your companies?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, as your company grows, like, spreading knowledge is, or just communicating in general is, like, one of the hardest things. I, I think at, like, any reasonable scale, that becomes the hardest problem. So at Artsy, we try to do a lot of different things. So one of the things is, so one of our principles is, like, kind of, we're open by default. So uh, we, being that we, like, have kind of... M- pretty much everything that we do open for the world. We try to do a really good job of like documenting kind of everything as we're going along. So we have a ton of documentation. So artsy has this uh, README repository that just has like a lot of like documentation on kind of like everything like from a process level or like kind of documenting a lot of our systems and stuff like that. Of course, like every, repo will have like dedicated readmes and like try to do a good job of documenting everything in there we have working practice groups so it's probably similar to the guild where we'll just like have like a front-end working group where we like get together and like you know talk about like front-end issues or things that come up on product teams yeah just like lots of meetings we do like show and tells uh lunch and learns uh to like kind of talk about things that we're working on or cool things that we've learned. Um, we also like bring in people outside of the company to come in to like teach. So we just try to like take advantages of of as many of those opportunities as possible to like, you know, create like uh, an, an environment for sharing. But it's it's definitely uh, still challenging.
1: Yeah, at AWS, it's, uh, we have about four different main types of events. We have uh, meetups that are like internal meetups. Uh, we also have external meetups. So like a few of the uh, meetups in Seattle um, that, that I know of, of course, I'm only involved in certain echo chambers, but like GraphQL, for instance, we just had a GraphQL meetup at, in uh, one of the Amazon buildings for the, for the Seattle GraphQL meetup. So we have like internal and external meetups. We have internal conferences. So we have like a React Native conference coming up next year that's internal where we have like 400 or so people that come and it's all, it's like as big as like a regular conference. Actually. Uh, we have just talks. So every, uh, like really every week you can find like a few dozen, probably different talks around, uh, around, uh, Amazon or AWS, depending on what you're interested in. And you can pretty much just take an hour or two out of your day and just like go to those. And those are pretty cool. And then we have demo, demo days. So like, uh, every group, uh, typically has like a demo day every week where they kind of demo the stuff that they've been working on and some of the new features. So those seem to be like uh, what we do at AWS.
3: Yeah, de- de- demo day is very interesting. We have here at Doc something uh, like that too. Like it's the end of the sprint demos where like oh, yeah. we gather together. Probably something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. And, and Carl is like very, it's very involved with those initiatives too. Always make sure everything is working properly and she chooses the best snacks too.
4: It's a great <laughs> it's a great power. That's that's important.
2: <laughs> and beers.
1: Definitely helps beers. people show up, right?
3: <laughs> yeah. And also the, the the good artisanal beers.
4: Yeah, it's building a system for success, right? <laughs> that's it. Figure out what motivates people and make sure that that's there. And yeah, you know, that's nice.
3: So, another subject that I find it interesting and it's very important uh, for us here at ZuckDoc is security, right? As a healthcare company, there, there's a lot of uh, regulations and a lot of, uh, you have HIPAA, you need to be HIPAA compliant and stuff. So I know that, that you've been working with some security related work now, Carly. Could you tell a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so mostly uh, this, I think what you're referring to is probably the uh, vone process yes. that every summer Yeah so GitHub has this like wonderful feature now which automatically detects uh, it like goes basically to the NIST NIST is the National Institute for Standards and Technology and they manage like a vulnerability database right? And so any, like, known vulns that show up in there, GitHub will automatically detect, like, if they're in your package JSON file or your package lock file, and it will will tell you. So it will, like, send you an email to any, I think, admins or, you know, whoever wants to get the emails that your package has, like, a known vulnerability in it, and you should try to fix it, right? And so Mm -hmm. this is, like, a recent feature of GitHub, and I actually think it's really cool because I think we've all probably been running NPM install recently and seen that last line where it says, oh, you have, you know, 106 like high vulnerabilities and 300 medium and three low and like one critical or something like that. And we kind of just continue like going about our day. And so this like GitHub feature now actually is is uh, like acting a little bit as, as a forcing mechanism for us to look into those and, and try and fix them a little bit. But yeah, so basically it's like, it's taking, so th- that output of like NPM audit is basically, you know, what that that's running right there. That's not necessarily the same as like the vulnerabilities that are detected in this like NIST database. I don't know exactly how npm audit like gets its information actually, but at least I think GitHub's being very thoughtful about it. And so we're really paying attention to the ones that come through from GitHub and uh, trying to you know do whatever we can to fix them, which usually amounts to updating the package truthfully or understanding that oh it's in dev dependencies and this vulnerability is like a DDoS attack. So it's not going to matter. Or yeah, just understanding that like the bone doesn't affect us in, in whatever other way. There is this like really cool package that I, that I was recently looking at that you're probably also referring to Lucas, which is like called like NPM audit resolve, I think, which helps you to like version control your attempts to resolve these issues. So let's say you like went through and you notice like a high vulnerability, you know, doesn't actually impact you because it's in dev dependencies or whatever it is. Um, You can like mark that you tried to resolve that and mute it for some time or mute it indefinitely. Or you can, you can mute, like you, let's say you like know a patch is coming down the pipeline for some package. You can mute something for like 24 hours waiting for that patch. And then after that, it will start alerting at you again. And you can also just like maintain a history of just like who has attempted to upgrade or resolve these vulnerabilities. So that's like, it's still, uh, the package does not have a ton of downloads yet, but I, I think it's a promising idea and, I think it would be cool if they just like build this into NPM even as a default way to manage these. Because right now we don't have a lot of tools to actually deal with these vulnerabilities that are reported, right? Like oftentimes like NPM audit fix, it says like run NPM audit fix to fix six of these and you run it. And then it's like run NPM audit fix to fix six of these. And it just, you're not even sure like why or what's happening or like where these are coming from. Um, So it's really opaque right now. So I think anything to make it more transparent will be better.
4: Yeah, NPM audit came from. So there was this, I don't know if they were a company, but the node security platform or whatever. It was. Oh, the like, NSP,
2: right, right, right. Yeah, yeah.
4: They were actually purchased by NPM. So um, that's where the audit functionality came from, from NPM. Yeah. But yeah, we primarily use Yarn at Artsy. So we miss out on the audit feature. Uh, but, you yeah, know, definitely a thing, something to be aware of for sure.
2: Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, this stuff was just existing before and we just didn't know about it. And now at least we we know.
4: Yeah, so that's one of the things that I've I've recently run across. There's like a lot of kind of cognitive load that's just like sitting out there waiting to be recognized. So security is definitely a thing. Like also just like being aware of like what licenses you use and thinking about like features that you might not be actively investing a lot in. So for example, accessibility is really difficult but important topic that's easy to be out of mind. Um, but when you start thinking about it, it takes like a lot of effort to kind of get right. You know, performance can also fall in that same category. Like if it's not terrible, maybe you don't recognize it. And then when you actually start like thinking about it, like there's a lot that goes into like making a site performant. There's like all these like, Things out there waiting to be discovered, or unfortunately stumbled upon, and then when you hit those problems, you realize, oh wow, there's so much more work to do. So building something is more than just you know putting some JavaScript and CSS on the page. There's like a lot of concerns that we have to deal mm-hmm. with. So. Yeah, this
3: this answers well the first question of this podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. It is it is difficult. <laughs>
4: Yeah. It's like just something that's like so nuanced and so difficult is that building the product is just like the tip of the iceberg. Getting that feature to work is the easiest thing to do. It's all the other like things that you have to do to like really get that like full like delivery that makes it challenging.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And especially on the performance side, like we've definitely had these kind of, yeah, on the performance side, we've definitely had issues. Like we at one point had to take a bunch of engineers and divert them against a performance issue and just have them like work for like a month or something like that um, to just try and improve the performance on this thing that had gotten so out of hand and honestly a little bit like mysterious to, as to how it got so bad. Right. I also think that's like a, a little bit of a special thing for the web too, because A lot of our stuff, like a lot of our problems would be made easier if you could just have a lot more like space, a lot more stuff that you, if your bundle, if your bundle sizes could be huge, like a lot of things would be easier. (laughs) Like, for example, if you have some component library and you you need like two things to show up on the page and they want these different versions of that component library, like, are you really going to download it twice or are you going to force those two things to upgrade at the same time? And then like how much work is it to force those things to upgrade at the same time? But so... And that kind of stuff you you have specific to the web that I don't think you see as much with like native like desktop applications, um, for example. So back to your point about like QT, right? Like you, your bundle sizes matter a lot more too when you're working on the web. So you just have a little bit less freedom.
4: Yeah, 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 for sure. One last thing that I'd really love to talk about just like in relation to that whole topic is like monitoring and CI for like things like bundle size or, you know, running tests or, you know, kind of whatever whatever you're kind of doing so how do y'all how do y'all set that up currently specifically like any performance related monitoring with ci
2: yeah so actually we have these things that are literally called bundle size checks in ci and there's some npm package that we just installed and it basically like monitors the size of your webpack file and you just set limits on it and if you give it a little bit more permissions it will actually like watch how it changes. So it'll show like, okay, this, it increased by this amount in this run, but how we have it set up right now, is just like, it can't go over a certain number, which actually did catch one thing one time. I think it's caught one thing so far. (laughs) That's like pretty good. But it was suddenly, you know, with one pull request, all the bundle sizes doubled or something. and And it caught that. And otherwise we would have just started downloading twice as much data to our clients and our SEO probably would have gone down. So that would have been bad.
4: What's the the name of that library?
2: I think it's called bundle size checks. Okay, cool. I think so. Or bundle size, something like that, yeah. And uh, we also use speed curve for performance monitoring. So that's, uh, you know, so the bundle size checks, they run right in CI. They run before the code gets into master. So that's like ideal, right? Um, The performance monitoring stuff runs in our staging and in our production environments, I think that's still true. And so that what that will do is, uh, yeah, we use speed curve, it goes and samples your website, it can run as like real browsers and various connection speeds. And we basically like set what they call budgets there. So if we see that consistently, for example, the homepage has gone above a certain threshold, in terms of how long it takes to load, or in terms of especially like this kind of like first interactive metric that we watch closely, we'll start getting pages through PagerDuty. So we'll get alerted. And the action that should happen from that would probably be like, either it was a legitimate code change, so a revert should happen, right? Try to figure out, isolate what what code change it was or, or roll back to a previous version until you figure out what the code change is. Or, uh, there's, or there's probably some like third-party dependency that's slowed down a lot. Like maybe some, some third-party API that we hit on page load or something has, has slowed down a lot. So we try and look into that, see see what the reason for it is. But yeah, that just gives us like, I don't think we've actually ever alarmed on that yet, but it just definitely gives us like peace of mind that it's there. So if stuff started like significantly slowing down, at least we'd know about it.
4: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that's all the time that I have for today. Um, so uh, thanks for coming on, Carl. It was great yeah. talking to you. It's awesome hearing about how uh, ZocDoc is uh, or has grown uh, in the front end area. And uh, definitely, uh, I think, Culture, for sure, in our, in our field is, is very important. So um, it's, it's awesome to hear about Yale's progress. So. Yeah,
2: thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. You guys have an awesome podcast.
4: <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we
3: will see everybody uh, next week. Uh, wait, Justin, one thing.
0: Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Oh, Picks. Oh,
4: the no. Picks.
0: <laughs>
4: I forgot about Picks. Yeah, good, good,
0: good. That's
3: interesting. So let, let me start with the Picks then. My pick is an app I found uh, these last weeks. It's called Libby. I will publish the, 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 the link. This app lets you read and listen to, to books that are available in your library. So... It's really cool. Like I, I entered the, the, the local library. You put your number of your uh of your you put your library number in the app, and you have access to all like the e-books and the audiobooks for free in the library. Sometimes you need to wait a little bit for them to be available, but yeah, it's a great great idea. Great
2: app. That is a great idea. <laughs> I like that.
4: It's yeah. really awesome. Uh, Carly, do you have any picks?
2: So right now I'm listening to the book called selfish gene by Richard Dawkins, um, which was published originally in like the seventies or something like that. Um, and it's a fascinating book. It's all about like his thesis is that, uh, genes are the level at which selfishness, like true selfishness occurs. Um, and so any altruism that like we detect in the world and there is like arguably like individuals can be altruistic, but it's really their genes being selfish at the end of the day. Uh, It's a super interesting book and I'm really into it right now. Um, I had it recommended, my, my boyfriend read it first and there's this section about ants and he just could not stop talking about these ants. Like he (laughs) literally said to me one time that he was hoping that when he retires, he wants to just get a plot of land in Wyoming and do unethical experiments on ant, ants and so like he won't have to listen to the law no one can like police his experiments on ants and i was like okay i think i need to read this book if this is having such an impact on you you know um so yeah i'm reading it now and it's very interesting like a lot of the concepts can you you can take them and you can apply to like organizations or companies or um just like your day-to-day life in general uh so it's good for like analogies in that way and just thinking about like economics and how the world works and everything
4: awesome uh so i have two picks for this week so one is this tool called test cafe so test cafe is an end-to-end testing tool kind of similar to like what cypress does it's so it doesn't use uh selenium and it's you know, like similar to Cypress in some ways, but it like runs basically off of a proxy. It's a pretty cool tool. Um, So if you're looking for different testing strategies that's not tied to a browser, that's uh, a cool thing to check out. The second thing, probably when this podcast goes out, it'll be old news, but uh, Create React App 2.0 just got released. So there's like a lot of like really good updates. Um, Some things that I was excited about, like, uh, First-class support for CSS modules, Babel Seven supports. Uh, you can use like Babel macros out of the box now. You can import uh, SVGs as React components. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. So excited about that! Uh, yeah, that's my picks for this week. Cool. All right, now that's all we got. <laughs> Thanks everybody for joining, and we'll see you next week. All right.
2: Okay. Bye
1: bye. Bye
4: bye everyone. Take it easy bandwidth for this
0: segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more